passing through history. This, this is history. Hold on to your butts. Now, what shall we talk about? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in. I... <laughs> I was a little late on that one. I was still on mute. That's on me. But we're back. Welcome in to the Duel of the Greats podcast, folks. We're on episode six now, Cyberpunk Detective Week, or as I like to call it, Cyberpunk Detective Week, because both of the movies that we'll be talking about this week, Steven Spielberg's Minority Report and Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, were based on short stories slash novellas from the science fiction master himself, Philip K. Dick. Minority I feel Report like you'd been setting up that pun all week. I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it all week. That's how I roll, okay? So, um, but yeah, Minority Report based on the Minority Report from Philip K. Dick, and then Blade Runner based on a Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? We, we kind of teased it last week, but I love what Philip K. Dick does with, does with titles. I mentioned it last week also, but Total Recall, the movie was based on um, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. And uh, there's another short story that he has called The Eyes Have It, and it's very funny. It's like six pages long. It's really short, but you should all read it. And it, the, the title becomes much funnier and more inventive once you read the story. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's not a Philip K. Dick podcast. This is a podcast about... Steven Spielberg, and Ridley Scott. And that's exactly where we're going with it this week. As I mentioned, we're going to talk about Minority Report, we're going to talk about Blade Runner, and we're going to talk about how both those movies not only stack up against each other, but how they look compared to their source material and how some of the ideas that, that Philip K. Dick tried to get across in his source material, how those were translated by both directors into the films and how successful they were at that and how successful they were just in general uh, with the films themselves. So, before we dive in, of course, introductions. I am Jeff Herr. With me as always, our resident historian, Steve Shepard, and the professor himself, Nate Carter. Guys, how are you doing? Doing good. Fantastic. Doing good. Ready to Great. dive on I'm, I'm really excited for this week because this was not the, only... In my opinion, this was the hardest week in terms of really? selecting... This was the hardest week. Oh, in terms anxious. of like, like which one you like better? You mean the actual? Which winter? one I like better? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm anxious. I've not even really decided yet because this might be a week where, in the course of recording this, you guys like sway me one way or the other. This is a very interesting. So week. you, this, this, who knows? I, I haven't told Steve ahead of time what his, what my vote is, and he hasn't told me what his. So maybe you, maybe you could right. be a tiebreaker. This is interesting Same. because I, I very strongly feel that one of these is heads and tails above the other one. So Same. I do. I do too. So that'll be oh. interesting. I wonder if the, the fact that we read, well, we'll dive in. We'll dive in. We'll, we'll dive in. Yes, indeed. And that's exactly what we'll do right now. Um, so first, 
let's we'll, we'll kind of lay down some background here. Um, we like to typically, you know, give some some kind of tidbits about the production history and everything. So, uh, Steve, I know you found just a couple interesting facts about both productions. Uh, so, why don't you hit us with those right now? Well, uh, both of them went through quite a few different um, screenwriters and scriptwriters, and kind of I don't know if production hell is the right term, but it wasn't an easy uh, transition from film or from book to screen for either of these. Um, you know, one interesting thing about Blade Runner, it's Ridley Scott's first American film. I think it was only his third overall. Uh, uh, maybe Brandon can double check me on that. Um, but so he, he was a new kid on the block and he was dealing with a lot of established producers and actors and, and he, uh, didn't like it. He was, I guess, a real pain in the ass, uh, on set and made a lot of enemies, I guess. Um, short term, uh, he and, he and, um, Harrison Ford did not get along. They really did not like each other and did not work well together. Um, at the time they've since patched things. Although up. the results would, would, would disagree. Right. For sure. That, that is interesting. Um, Philip K. Dick, uh, was not involved so much, but he was very much monitoring how it was going. And this was kind of one of the last things I think, I was actually just doing some reading here. Before I was actually going to bring that up if you hadn't. He actually died in 1982. Yeah. Blade Runner it, came out. The making of Blade Runner kind of took over the last few months of his life. So Ridley Scott, did he kill Philip K. Dick? I don't know. It's hard to say. Who's to um, say? Please don't sue us, Mr. Scott. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> but, you know, there's not... Basically, if we want to open the Pandora's box or the Prometheus box... And that's a callback. You can see what it did there. Yo. Um, you know, we could spend hours discussing minutia and trivia of all these movies. That's why we've kind of pivoted away from the just given the straight background, because a lot of people know about these movies. Um, but if you don't know anything about Blade Runner, it's like a seminal science fiction work. It not single handedly, but it played a huge part in inspiring the cyberpunk aesthetic of the eighties, uh, that we're still, still dealing with today. Uh, dealing with makes it sound like a negative that's not true i like it it's fun um minority report Being the effects of yes thank you uh, minority report it was um steven spielberg was very interested in doing it once it kind of you know was more fully formed and came to him because he was intrigued about doing something in the future he hadn't really had an opportunity to do that and um one very interesting thing i thought was that he was very concerned um or focused on, rather, I think is a better way to say it, focused on having a really um, believable future. Like, the tech would be believable. He didn't want just to go out and say, all right, give me the wildest, crazy-ass shit you can find for what 2054 will look like. He said he got together, actually, a working group of futurists and technology people and said, "What what's it really going to look like in 2054? Uh, and you, it's kind of crazy. Some of the things that, you know, are very prominent in the movie, we kind of have bits of it now um the the tech the vr tech you know where he's manipulating things with his hands i mean that's that's the standard issue vr controls now um now obviously it's not as integral uh to law enforcement and or daily life as it is in the movie but he was onto something he got the right people in the room it sounds like um we still don't have flying cars and we still don't have completely automated cars and that upsets me but maybe one day maybe we'll get there I don't think flying cars is ever going to happen because 
The one thing no one in science fiction ever talks about is like, imagine if you have a crash with a flying car, right? It just all that debris comes crashing down into the ground, and somebody has to clean it up, and it's more injuries, and so it's Chaos. just more trouble. Yes, you know, but automated cars were pretty close on. I feel like, yeah, or, I don't know if I'd say we're close, but it's we're closer than definitely than flying cars. The thing I thought was funny, um, just watching Minority Report, they have all this futuristic tech, but the people that made it. Um, and apparently the characters in the universe just could not fathom high-definition television. Because even the little home movies they watch are just the worst quality. It's like, what are you yeah, guys they're, doing? They're, they're fulling 3D, or yeah. fully uh, 3D um, holograms. But yep, but it's terrible. 480p. Um, and also cell phones. For some reason, even though 2001 we had cell phones, but the idea of smartphones, they, I mean, they, they just they assumed, it's kind of like Zoolander. Right where you have Zoolander, he's got that tiny ass little phone, you know, which came out around the same time. They assumed, I think, that the tech would be concerned with being smaller, so that you wouldn't have to carry a bulky phone in your pocket. They don't think they, they definitely not predict um, the rise of smartphones. I think they also maybe overestimated. Like it's really cool how he has essentially what is a flash drive that they slide these things in, uh, these videos, and they slide them into computers. I think maybe they overestimated. Like the actual, like um, having like physical hardware, and now like everything is digital. Like we just store it in one digital sort of cloud, and we bring mm -hmm. things up digitally instead of actually like we don't pull like YouTube videos from little hard drive cassettes and like put them into our computer to watch a video. We just like pull it up digitally. So the it's it's such a cool fake technology they have in the movie, but it's I don't think it's very practical uh, in the long run. Yeah, that's I hadn't even thought about that. That's true. That's that was funny. Also, what's um, with the the inhaling the little disc, I, I still didn't quite figure out. Is that does that immerse him further in the the home video, or what's going on with that? That was a drug, man. Yeah, oh, he's just getting high. Drug. Yeah, it's a neuroin. Oh, neuron. Yeah, okay, neuroin. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, well, it's basically like heroin. Apparently, I, I I'm not a <laughs> you missed, to catch that. You missed that. I, I guess I overthought it. Well, because that's he was... what he—that's what he's buying from the uh, the blind guy without the eyes. Yeah, no, it makes sense now. It all makes sense now. Or buying from there. Um, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about the stories for a minute. So Steve and I read the stories. Um, I say stories because Minority Report itself is like a twenty-page, really short story. Um, and then Do Androids Dream of, of Electric Sheep, which is what Blade Runner was based on, is actually more of a novella. It's a little bit longer. Uh, but Steve and I both read them. Um, Nate wanted to didn't want to taint his view on the film. I think just wanted to keep keep the the I feel film. Like I contributed to Jurassic Park. Last there you year. go. There you go. Yeah. So and you're, you're aren't you an aren't you an actual you're an English teacher, right? I am an English. Yeah, teacher. Yeah. So I should, I, I should have probably. Read them. It's, well, it's uh, the end of the year. I, <laughs> I was wondering. I was wondering that. I was like, is he just going to be able to pound these out in like a day because he's an English teacher, or is it going to be like I read? all the time i don't want homework for the podcast too yeah it, <laughs> it, it was honestly if i'm being honest even if my students are listening i will probably say that i just did not want the homework for the podcast for this that's week. totally, that's I, totally I do it. feel like both these movies have and we'll talk about this here in a little bit but they just have the most incredible production design so i figured i'd come at it more from that particular angle when we kind of start to talk about it yeah and i um these these had both been on my list for a long time of, of something that I wanted to read, so I just kind of took this as the excuse where I was like, I'm going to do it. Uh, but, so that's that's what I did. 
and Steve did as well. And so looking at, uh, we'll start with the Minority Report, which, like I said, it's a lot shorter. And Steve and I already kind of discussed this a little bit, but it's interesting how we uh, we kind of come out differently on this. It just just in not even in, in the readings of the story itself, but in terms of how um, different the story was to the movie itself. With Minority Report, I felt it was overall the broad strokes of it. I felt were pretty similar. So uh, major differences are that the um, Lamar Burgess character played by Max von Sydow in the movie is a general named Leopold Kaplan in the book and or in the story. And I, and I already he, disagree. I don't think they're playing the same character at all. The same I'm same sure purpose of character. I don't think so. I disagree. Okay, but continue, continue. Well, because Lamar Burgess is a senator, and he's um, the idea is, uh, you know, he's essentially he's the one of the forefathers, along with John Anderton, of free crime and wants it to go national. Whereas um, the Leopold Kaplan guy in the show, he has nothing to do with pre-crime in the, in the story. He's a former general who was kind of ousted out of power in one of the wars that they talked about. They don't even, I don't even know if they talk about the war in Minority Power. I don't think they talk about it at all. But um, in a war, he was, he, he was very prominent general, ousted out of power. He wants to take that power back. And so he and other generals... I've kind of established this sort of coup that they're doing. And one of the aspects of this coup is that they're going to, because pre-crime is already, from my understanding, Steve, did you read it this way? It was already kind of national at that point. Yeah. I, I, that was the impression I got. Yeah. I didn't explicitly say it. But um, that it was national. There was more than just, there were three in the unit that John Anderton worked in, yeah. in the story, but I, there were more precogs out there. And, and the they definitely tested for people. It's yeah, it's wildly different too. They told they found everything. They all crimes, not just murders. So yeah. even petty crime. And they would take the uh, they'd get these little cards instead of the balls in the movie. They'd get these cards, but the cards had like some sort of barcode type thing on it that made them the old school ones. punch cards. If yeah, well. and so like the little punches that made them unique each one. But they would take the cards and then they would give them so the. The guy, uh, I can't remember the actor's name. He was in the practice, but I love the guy. He's his name. He played uh, Steve, Steve Wilkes. Yeah, I think that's right. There were so many that guys in this movie, by the yeah, way. Yeah, right. Put that in my notes. <laughs> um, like, hey, hey, that guy. But, but, but the guy that that, that guy played you know, in the book, Anderton would hand him all the cards and he would go through and decide, okay, which crimes are we actually going to, you know, pre stop? Right. Uh, so it's, you know, it's more than just murders. So that was a little bit different, but um, ultimately, though, the story was Whitworth comes in. Whitworth's going to be, he's not a sort of auditor like he is in the movie. He is the, John Anderton's older, and he's getting ready to retire, and Whitworth's the guy who's going to take his job. Um, he's going to serve as an apprentice for a while and then take over once Anderton retires. And um, so then Anderton gets a card. And he sees it before anybody else, just like in the movie. It says his name on it, and then it says Leopold Kaplan. And just like in the movie with Leo Crow, he's like, I don't know who this person is. Why does it say I'm going to kill this person? And then, um, you know, it kind of, he gets found out pretty quick, goes on the run. His initial suspicion, just like kind of in the movie, is that Whitwer is behind everything and wants to frame him. And then it it sort of evolves into this big conspiracy and we find out that what we're 
um, was just doing his job, wasn't involved in anything. Um, and then that it's all this Leopold Kaplan, and that's why Anderton was going to kill him. And then, um, so, and then the biggest difference, I think, came from the way like, the minority report and what that actually meant. So in the movie, the minority report was all three precogs usually agree if they don't, one of them doesn't agree, that's the minority report. And that I think that was, the explanation was similar in the book, but ultimately what happened was the one precog had a vision. And then because John Anderton can, his name shows up on the card, he can change his future, right? And so he decides he's going to change his future. And then the second precog has a future from that timeline where he's already changed. And then, because he knows that information that he can change, then it changes again. And the third precog has a third separate future, but two of the futures both involved him murdering somebody. And the one in the middle didn't. So they thought the one in the middle was the minority report because the first two futures or the other two futures actually had him, even though it came about it in a different way. So the real kind of crux of the, of the narrative I, I felt was free will, right? Like what, what, and I think if you could really take even a further step back and you want to boil both these stories down um, from Philip K. Dick's perspective, I think it's, they're both about humanity and, as we get further along and we get more technology that can essentially take away pieces of necessary humanity, then, you know, what's left that actually makes us human, right? And for Minority Report, the big one was free will and wh what decisions we can make, how we have those decisions, what they affect, and just that power that that has and the knowledge of what you would do if you knew you were going to commit a crime. Right. So um, and I think that from a movie perspective, that was the the crux of it at the end uh, of the movie as well. Like at the end, Anderton's confronting Lamar Burgess and he's like, you have the power to change this just like I did. I changed I changed the future for myself because he didn't actually kill Leo Crow. Um, so, you know, I, I thought the broad strokes of the story were the same. So. I shouldn't say the same. We're similar enough. And then um, they, they, they changed some of those things. And I thought the way they handled the minority report was maybe a little bit more interesting in the book, but it would have trans it would have felt convoluted trying to translate that into a movie. So the way they did it, I think was fine. Um, but Steve, you obviously disagree. Lay it on me. Well, I just think a lot of the, the, the themes I think that Steven Spielberg wants to talk about, and a lot of them are things that we've talked about as reflected in his filmography so far, you know, family and what that means to someone, you know, none of that is really approached at all in the book. Um, the whole son um, plot line, it's non-existent. There's no motivation about um, family or vengeance or anything like that on Anderton's part in the book. And to me, that was one of the more compelling parts of it. Um, the scene where, where uh, in the film where he's at the pool and he goes under for five seconds and then comes back up and his son's gone. That was, 
I don't have any kids, but that was pretty, pretty, you know, heart wrenching right there. Just how quickly it happened. There's nothing like that in the book. Um, <clears throat> and you know, going to your point about free will, I agree. That's ultimately what they're about. But one thing, and I think this kind of goes into what we talked about with Steven Spielberg and how he, he, he always kind of seems like he's striving for the good in people and society and humanity. There's always kind of an optimistic note, you know, in his minority report, any person that's accused of a pre-crime ultimately does have the power to change their fate, right? Um, that any of these people, we, it, it's, it looks like any of them could have not done the crime that they were supposedly accused of, you know, going to do. So there's a huge question of is whether this is going to be an issue moving forward. Um, you know, pre-crime is obviously not ideal uh, as a as a system in in his universe. Whereas in the short story, they I mean they ex- even explicitly say at the end, Anderton is talking to Whitwer, who's as you said going to be his um, replacement eventually, and that's still kind of the status quo at the end. Um, and they explicitly say that this this scenario can only happen to one person, the person who literally reads the card or in Minority Report the ball. So. In the Philip K. Dick Minority Report universe, every other person that's accused of pre-crime, they, because they don't have knowledge, there's no way that they would have the knowledge that they're going to do it. They are guilty. They will commit it. They cannot change their fate. Um, and I think those are two wildly different kind of opinions of, um, you know, what the universe is and what the nature of choice is. Um, I much prefer Steven Spielberg's, uh, you know, the ability to choose and determine our fate than Philip K. Dick's uh, kind of Calvinistic, almost deterministic, you know, you're kind of locked in, unless you're one of the, the special people that is behind Mighty John Anderson or Whitmer. Um, so I, That's interesting know. because I the, from the movie, I, I read it essentially the same way, that they didn't explicitly say that the only person who could change their fate is the person who knows, but they did deal with the topic of having the knowledge and what that means for it. So I feel like they, again, they didn't explicitly say it like, um, like in the novel, but I, I thought they, uh, they did well, sort of cover it at least. So let's, and Nate, I want to hear your opinion since you only watched the movie. So the guy at the beginning of the movie, I forgot his name. The one that's, you know, charged with going to potentially murder his wife and her lover is how do you read the way that the film is set up? Does he actually have a choice? Like, is there any universe in which he doesn't commit the crime? He says he won't, of course, but they all say that, right? The movie clearly sets it up at the beginning to say that he was going to kill his wife no matter what. Um, even does Anderton does that little thought experiment where he rolls the ball along the little uh, counter. Colin Farrell grabs it and he says, "Why'd you catch that?" And he said it was going to fall. And he goes, "Ah, but you know, just because you caught it doesn't mean it wasn't go- it wasn't going to fall." How I read this now, how I read the whole movie now, and Steve, I'll or the the attorney, the, the person with the law degree, is kind of the person that I would want to look to more. Uh, for what your thoughts are on this, I read the entire thing as kind of a, a sense of like due process and what that is supposed to look like in this future where are we to be accused of crimes and convicted of crimes that happened only in our mind? And 
I agree, and based on what you're telling me about the, the stories and the, the, the short story versions of this, I like Spielberg's version where he is saying, ultimately at the end, that, that, that this initial way of thinking in the beginning is not correct. That uh, it's, it's not certain that this guy, even at the beginning in that opening scene, it's not certain that that guy is going to murder his wife, even though the movie presents it in that way, and they literally in that instance stop him, like literally right before he stabs his wife. Um, I, I like that notion that every single person still is able to have this choice of what they do. And, of course, the movie, the movie kind of ends with that little, uh, you know, uh, that little epilogue of, all the people were pardoned basically, yeah. you know, once, That's once this all difference. comes to, yeah, exactly. Like once this all comes out, all the people that were, you know, that were accused of these or convicted rather of these murders that they didn't actually commit, uh, they're all pardoned. And, um, it even has that little thing at the end of like, though the, the, you know, FBI and police departments kept a close eye, a close watch on them for many <laughs> years. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that was I, accurate about our future. <laughs> yeah, that, that was absolutely accurate about our future. Um, but yeah, I, I read it as kind of this, uh, this, this understanding of due process and what we, you know, in the internet age and how we live these very digital lives and how we kind of just are we getting to this place where people are going to know our thoughts or we're going to make our thoughts known through some kind of digital medium. Are we going to be convicted of crimes that are occurring only in our head? You know, where does that level of free will in terms of, you know, the law in thought the police. future? Yeah, thought police. I mean, you know, where, where is that, you know, how does that exist uh, in this world? And I think you know, Spielberg, who is a genius, tackles that theme in a really brilliant it's, way in this movie. It's actually kind of funny because we've talked about, you know, I regardless of whether we think, you know, in broad strokes, the, the story and the, and the uh, movie are, are close or not. There's there's still quite a bit of differences in, in the mechanics of, of how they it plays out on the page versus the screen, and I think the same is is true for Duander's Dream of uh, and Blade Runner. But the between both of them, the only thing that was nearly taken word for word is this one quote in dealing with this very topic, which I thought was interesting. Um, it was it was one of the that guys <laughs> in the movie, the the which blonde one? guy. That's his second in command. Oh yeah, he's, um, uh, he's explaining right before brothers. the right before the ball scene where he rolls it to Anderton. This is from the story, talking about you know whether or not they'll commit the crime, and he says, "quote Happily, they don't, because we get to them first before they can commit an act of violence. So the commission of the crime itself is is absolute metaphysics. We can claim they are culpable. They, on the other hand, can eternally claim they're innocent. In a sense, they are innocent. That was almost taken word for word for that guy's explanation during that scene, and that was the only thing." between both those stories that I think was that direct. And I thought that was interesting because that's exactly what you guys are talking about, where it's such a, a key component of the movie and, and the novel itself. I thought that was, or the, the story itself. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and then with do Android's dream of electric sheep. <laughs> so now this one, I think we can both agree, Steve, even though you may think it's, you may end up thinking it's more similar. Um, uh, those before I finished the report. Okay. I finished it since we talked. <laughs> okay. And uh, wow, this is wildly different from Blade Runner. It is um, the first like similar... 75% of it. I think Hughes 
fairly close with some major exceptions, but maybe um, the, first the, rails, thing, yeah. the first thing is, okay. So before I ever read the story, when I, when I saw the title, right. Do androids dream of electric? I was going to ask you, I want, I want to get Nate's opinion too, before you say what. The okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nate, when you hear that title, what do you think the story is going to be about? Or at least like, what do you think that well, that title is? Yeah, what do you think that means? If I knew nothing about Blade Runner. Even knowing something yeah. about Blade Runner. It's still, I, I think, yeah, I, even I, having I, seen the movie, what do you think that implies? Like, the, what think, is he trying think, to invoke? I think that implies is do androids, do, do robots that humans have built, do they have the capacity to have their own imagination? That's so, how like, I've always like counting, like counting sheep, like. right? Like, yeah, like counting right? sheep. So right? we imagine we have like, uh, in fact, I just you're gonna, I mean, like geek out on this, but I just read this whole book about how like what separates humans from animals is we have fictional social constructs, and everything in our life, everything that dictates our life is a fictional social construct. Okay, like money is a fictional social construct. Okay, podcasts, oh, podcasts, <laughs> like 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 a company is a fictional social construct. I mean, right. if you were to destroy every Ford car on the road right now if you were if they were all to just combust the ford company still exists like these things exist because they exist in our mind and so that title is asking are we're capable of that because we're human beings and that is there was like this major cognitive shift that happened 50 to 100,000 years ago that suddenly humans were able to do this that like we you know uh, you know uh when an animal's walking around and they see a tree, they know it's a tree because they physically see a tree. We hypothesize and we think about and we understand things that are not really there. That's actually what dictates a lot of our society, is things that are not actually there that we cannot actually see and feel and touch. So do androids dream of electric sheep is basically asking, do robots, do androids have the ability to con- have fictional social constructs in their minds? So that's more or less exactly what I thought, right? And it's completely wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I I had a feeling you were setting me up. Yes, of course. Not all what it's about, but okay. But that's that's what I thought. It's literally. That's actually deeper than what. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I thought it was just like, oh, counting sheep, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. Do they? But essentially, that's what you're talking about, right? Do they have that capacity to to think for themselves and imagine these things? Um, But no, it's literally asking if they dream of electric sheep because this novel is obsessed <laughs> with animals like weirdly obsessed and it is it is it's hit on briefly at two moments in the movie itself right when he mm-hmm. first goes to to visit with Tyrell and they have an owl and he asks if the owl is real is real and Rachel says all our animals are real and he's like okay cool and that's it and then later when he's um, tracking down Zora and she's dancing with the snake and, and backstage, she says, oh, is the snake real? And she goes, do you think I'd be working here if I could afford a real snake? And he's like, well, good point. And so there's kind of this – and there's that, that black market of, of animal creators that he goes to to try and figure out what the scale is from. But in the novel, it is – so Deckard has a sheep, and it is electric. It's fake. But he's really embarrassed about it because he wants so desperately to own a real live animal. They all keep their animals on the roof on the roof because in the in the if you've seen Blade Runner twenty forty nine, it yeah. kind of does a little bit better job of so, capturing some of the aesthetics of the novel. But like all the dust 
in Blade yeah, Runner twenty forty nine. Stepping back a bit, they Dover. I don't think they explicitly say it in the movie, but there has been basically World War Three has occurred, mm-hmm. and uh, literally, think literally everything outside the major cities is just wiped out. Like he said, if you've seen twenty or twenty forty nine, that landscape is what Blade Runner itself is actually set in. So animals are extinct, a ton of them. So, yeah. It, which, by the way, Blade Runner is, is technically set in 1991. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, t- there's all these animals that are extinct. It's very rare to actually own an animal. So Deckard, at one point, he did own a sheep, and it died. He was very upset about it. And so he, he, the sheep, he took the sheep away, and then he bought an electric sheep so that nobody would know his animal died. So he keeps the electric sheep up on the roof, and his neighbor has a horse, like a real horse. And he's super jealous. And so, like, you hear this, and it's not told in the first person, but it's, it's actually this weird thing where it's a third person, but then he kind of flips and, and talks about the, the, the character he's in, about what their internal monologue is using first person. It's kind of weird, but it works. Um, so you get this internal monologue of, of Deckard, who's just like, this goddamn guy with this horse, you know? And he, he really wants it. And he's like, oh, the guy's bragging. He's like, my horse is pregnant. And he's like, oh, well, what would you what would you charge for the for the foal, or is it fool foal? How, how, what are you, oh, how do you yeah. foal? What would you charge for the foal? And he's like, you couldn't afford it, Deckard. And it's like this this weirdly yeah. neighborly reaction, but it's all about these animals. And Deckard goes to on his way to work. He stops at the pet store and he just like presses up against yeah. the screen yeah. and just stares at these animals. Like, oh man, what I wouldn't give for a rabbit. Or something like just it, it, it just, is a major and continuing thing. It's one of the biggest themes in the entire book. I mean, it's like that that scene where uh, it's actually in the the book. It's called the Rosen Corporation, but the um, he oh, goes yeah, the there like where the like the Tyrell Corporation and, and that owl scene. Yeah, and the it's just kind of a throwaway thing, almost a, almost just to like okay, if you're fans of the book, we at least put something in here. That's almost yeah. what it feels like because in the book, it's like a huge thing. It's like a twenty. I mean, it's like a 10 page scene where he's sitting there talking about this owl talking about it with Rachel and they're talking about how like whether it's real or not and how much it costs and he always has this book with him that is like a price guide (laughs) of animals and how much they cost and whether or not they're extinct and all this stuff and so he's like where did you buy this owl from and she's telling him and he's like oh you know you bought it for this much and he's flipping through he's like this says it don't even exist anymore how did you find one and she's like we got really lucky and found it blah 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 I mean it, it is it is intense with the animals, okay? And they and, were lying, though. It was fake. Yeah, it was fake. And Which is foreshadowing the yes. the big reveal, which also happens in the movie. But they are, to me, Steve, you can, you can see if, if I, if this, um, if, if you kind of agree or not with this, but, and where it comes back to Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, it's, again, going back to Philip K. Dick, both these stories involving humanity, and another big factor besides animals in this movie is, excuse me, I'm sorry, in the novel, is loneliness. They talk about this just oppressive loneliness, almost as much as the dust in the city itself. There's, there's just, besides the dust out there, there's just nothingness. And there's all these abandoned apartment complexes where nobody lives, like the um, um, J.F. Sebastian character. Uh, it's some of these, the way they change the names is kind of weird because his name is J.R. Isidore in the in the novel, and it's like, why even change the name? It's just, but anyway. <laughs> um, but like they, they describe, he lives in this entire apartment complex by himself, 
and he's at points he's like scared to go outside because just this oppressive loneliness he doesn't like feeling it he likes to be inside with the tv on where he can feel like there's other people around and so you know this idea of of humanity needing this communal experience and everything and 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 also with the animals the way that factors in is there's this idea of humans and a desire to have something to be a part of something to own something to um just just that that desire that's there you know is is it even possible for an android to have that same level of desire for something whether it's love for another human whether it's something whatever you know or an animal something as simple as an animal animals a huge industry right we all have pets um not like i don't know if everybody here does uh, on this podcast but you know so many people in america and the world have pets and it's such a huge part of our culture and that's part of this this sort of essence of it and he so do androids dream of electric sheep do they because they're androids, do they dream of just having this thing because it makes them look human? And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to pass as human. So having an electric sheep would let you pass as someone who owns an animal, right? And and that's that's fine if that's all you're trying to do. But to try and actually own and commune with a living thing and have a relationship with a living animal or other people who extrapolate it, you know, that's a human thing. So do androids actually have this human thing or do they just dream of, of, of fitting in because they're supposed to, because they're programmed to? That's kind of how I read all the animal stuff and, and to tie along with the title, Steve. I mean, are you, did you read that in a similar way or you, you feel much different there? I would just say, based on how you're describing it, we can talk a little bit more about these comparisons, but I haven't read it. Mm-hmm. Based on how you're describing it, it seems like the sequel, Blade Runner 2049, is like a more faithful adaptation of those themes than so the funny. original you... Blade Runner. That's so um, funny you said that because I literally said that exact same thing to Steve yeah. at work today. I was like, 2049 is actually much more faithful to the yeah. aesthetics yeah. of the novel than, than the first one. I, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and, you know, I think it boils down to empathy, right? What, you know, it's, maybe we wouldn't say that I have an animal because I want to feel for another living creature. Therefore, you know, the reason I have the animal is empathy, but it, it's sim- you know, it kind of is that, like you were saying, it's to commune with a creature that's alive. We could e- all easily have robot pets, but there is something special about it being alive. And again and again and again in the book and the movie, you know, empathy is the big difference between androids and humans. And it's when that the lack of empathy or, you know, even if not the lack of it, but um, having empathy for other things. Like in the book, Deckard starts developing empathy for Rachel. Um, well, I guess he does in the movie, obviously, as well. Um, for all of them. Well, right. Um, and uh, he he thinks that's going to make him, you know, way worse at his job. And at, at one point he, he talks about essentially, you know, I can't do this anymore. I've lost my ability to to kill essentially because of empathy. So, I mean, I think that ultimately is the root of it. And I think that's what the animals symbolize. Um, And they're, yeah, I don't know why they chose to not do that for the movie, but I think it works. I think it's simply, you know, they simplified things a lot for the movie. There's a character in the book as well, another blade runner, um, which that term is not in the book at all. They're just Um, called bounty hunters. Apparently that was a, Oh shoot. I can't remember. I was just reading it. That term was from another, a short story that somebody else wrote. 
and they they optioned the the title because um, they liked it, I guess. Uh, I mean, it's an objectively cool name, but regardless, um, there's another one of those that he uh, Deckard encounters, and he represents the kind of the uncaring, uncompassionate. You know, is he an android because he's so stone cold? Um, version of Deckard in the movie. Because in the movie, um, it's, you know, there's the question is, is Deckard a replicant or not, right? That's one of the big questions for the ages. Also a term never used in the novel, replicant. That's a good point. Yeah. Always as, as I said it, I'm like, I just realized that never came up. Um, but here, there's there's nothing quite like that within his own brain. He The whole time, I think, Deckard in the book is empathetic and you know struggling with what he's doing whereas uh yeah and i don't think he ever really questions whether he's human or not in the book uh correct me if i'm wrong jeff but i don't think that really crosses his mind um and so they kind of externalize this you know this is he an android question via the use of this other blade runner he even administers the voigtkampf um test to the guy and uh guy passes but just barely um and it's it's like a whole thing in the novel where they're constantly um are you an android am i is he are you am i is he an are you an android is he and they're constantly asking everybody and um there's this whole subplot of like this this entire like fake police department with um that was created by androids to throw deckard off the trail of these other androids and that, that whole thing was cut out of the movie. Um, I'm so glad by the way, something it's like, that it, it's like, it's all the, the Spider-Man's pointing at each other. Meme. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And uh, another thing that I think was kind of the biggest piece that they left out. That was such a huge part of the story. Steve, you talked about empathy and, and, and how big of a deal this was so much so that they have what are called empathy boxes in their house. And or in their homes, and um, they could actually they called it dialing, where you could actually dial a specific code. And this Pinfield device, would, yeah, the Pinfield device, and you could dial the specific code, and the it would shoot something into your brain. I don't know if it was something they ate afterwards, like did it spit out a pill? I don't think that was ever explained, but it would essentially create a mood for them. And so you could um, at the very the very first scene in the movie. First of all, Deckard has a wife who is not Rachel. Um, and, but at the very first scene in the, in the, in the novel, I said the movie, sorry, the very first scene in the novel, um, Deckard has a wife who is not Rachel and they're talking and they're talking about, okay, what's, we're going to dial for the day. And his, his wife's like, um, yeah, I've got a, a six hour depression that I've dialed for today. And he's like, why the hell would you ever do that? And she's like, sometimes I just want to feel the nothingness in order to better appreciate, you know, when I, when I don't feel that way which is somewhat logical, I suppose, but, but also like kind of very messed up. And so, but then he's trying to get, he's given her ideas. Why don't you dial for this? Why don't you dial for this? Different types of moods. And eventually he gets to the point where she's like, I don't even want to dial anything. And he's like, well, just dial three. Because if you just dial three, it'll give you something that makes you want to dial again. And like that, this sort of self-perpetuating thing, it's that you can dial something that just makes you want to watch TV no matter what's on, right? Like all these, these sort of micro moods that you can get in and you can, it can just zap that into your brain. It's wild. And they, uh, 
and then there's also these these this sort of religious thing called mercerism. Not sort of, it is a religious thing called mercerism. And it is they they have these virtual reality boxes that they they link up to. And it is a communal experience, right? So all these people are, are disparate across the world or whatever. But if they, everyone who links up to an empathy box at, at a particular point in time, because um, these are the empathy boxes. I think what Steve, the, the Penfield boxes, those were not called empathy boxes, right? Yeah, I think they are two separate devices. Yeah. So that the empathy boxes are for the mercerism. And so, but everyone who's connected at that same time can sort of feel each other's connection. And they follow this mythical figure named Mercer. And he's very Jesus-like. I mean, he's described, it looks exactly like Jesus. Long, flowing brown hair, robes, beard, the whole deal. And he walks up this hill, and they all follow him in virtual reality. And they all love it because they can commune with each other. And part of this whole process, too, is that something that they've, they, they didn't even address in the, um, the film, but there's the, all like the rich people immigrated from Earth a long time ago. The people who are left are called specials, and they're essentially too dumb to leave Earth, and they didn't want that gene gene pool being replicated elsewhere, so they sterilize them and just leave them in Earth, and then they they sort of um, the the derogatory name for them are chicken heads, and so this that J F Sebastian that's kind of why he sounds dumb in the movie I think, like I shouldn't say dumb but but he sounds like slower in the movie, um, because uh, that I think is what they were trying to capture without actually diving into it. Even though he was also kind of a weird genius because he helped create all these things. So it was sort of this weird thing where it seemed like they were trying to cover that aspect, but then also not. Um, But again, that was again about that shared experience, about that shared uh, mercerism, this religion, all this sort of stuff. And then of course, Mercer is revealed to be a fake, just a fake program created by Hollywood. And that was the whole purpose of the androids because Roy Batty and the novel was pissed because the androids could not experience a communal experience like being hooked up to the empathy boxes. And he thought that if he could prove or all the, he, he rallied all the androids to, to, to get behind this, but he thought if they could, if he could prove that this experience that they were all experiencing was fake, that mercerism wasn't real, then humans would then realize, okay, we're, you know, we're not better than the androids like we thought we were. Because we thought, because in Roy's mind, the reason they think they're better is because they can have this communal experience that androids can't. And so that's the whole purpose for why Roy is trying to sort of start this revolution and get away. Whereas, you know, they don't even really touch. They they sort of talk about a shelf life for androids in the book, but they don't talk about him wanting to extend. Like the whole the whole purpose in the in the in the movie was wanting to extend his life, and that is not um, that's not really yeah, that's what not they, they talked about in, in the novel at all. The whole Roy Batty and friends, <laughs> um, you know, part of it is it, just totally different, and like they don't even use it to address the same ideas really, and. It's anticlimactic how it ends, whereas Roy Batty is super like, anticlimactic. Yeah, I mean, there's like no the tears in the rain speech. No, it is it yeah. is epic in the movie, and in the novel, it's just like, oh, he walked into the kitchen and he yeah. shot Roy Batty and he spasmed and then he's dead, and then all like two uh, paragraph later, Deckard's back home. And I mean, I think it's the super weird. 
the Roy Batty part, you know, the whole fight with him and his character and especially the ending, you know, all of that I think is arguably what takes Blade Runner to a whole nother level, right? Um, than just a science fiction movie. Obviously it was groundbreaking with this, the effects and the world building, but that, that really kind of elevated it. Um, and so I, I really missed that uh, in the novel. It just kind of, it kind of fizzles, I think, at the end. I think they kind of lost the plot. Yeah, um, the the ending kind of suffered. But um, okay, so I think that kind of covers the the novel stuff. I wanted to lay that groundwork because I I, I do think that kind of factors into some of my um, my thoughts and everything. So Nate, thank you for bearing with us on that. But now we get to dive into the the real fun stuff. So what do you guys want to talk about first? Which one do you want to talk about first? Well, I think first we need to figure out what is the scope of the question here. Is the for the head to head, is it who made a better movie, who adapted it better, or who took the ideas presented in the books and the novel, uh, novella and used them to the best effect or option D. What are we I, really I, trying to get to? I am taking the approach of, you know, better movie is number one, but, a big a big factor in that as well is that third option that you mentioned of who took the ideas from the stories okay. and implemented them better. But um, you know, obviously, main thing is is movies here. So, but anyway, uh, so what do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about Minority Report. Okay, so um, that's the first one I watched this week. So that's what. So Are you guys, of all, by the way, watching these in any particular order? I have somehow, by default, just watched the Spielberg movies first. And I don't know if that's coloring my perception of things. That depends Sometime. on when I've watched them last. So, like, <clears throat> like last week I didn't re-watch Jurassic Park or Lost World. I've watched both of those probably in the last year. Mm-hmm. It, it, generally, if I've seen them in the last year, I... I Unless I really want to rewatch it again, I'm I'm usually okay with not rewatching it. Um, and I think for like I'd have to go back like the first week of Duel vs. the Duelist. Um, and I I think I did um for whatever reason I did Duelist first. I I don't think I have any science to why I did that. I think it's just like the one that pops up first when I would like decide to you know go rent them. Yeah, for me, um, Jackie, my wife has kind of been watching some of them with me if she's interested so it will depend on that so if she's got something that you know we want to watch a movie and she's willing to watch one of the ones for the week with me then we'll watch that one first whichever one it is so um you know this week she we didn't she didn't end up watching both of them with me but she was willing to watch both of them because she likes both these movies just like i think both of us do i mean all of us do um so yeah but i did watch minority report first but with duel and duelist i watched duelist first and, um, yeah, I didn't rewatch Jurassic Park or The Lost World. So hmm. um, we did I do watched... a similar thing in our household with Schindler's List and Gladiator. And my wife wanted to rewatch Schindler's List because, as we discussed, it's such a crowd pleaser. Um, <laughs> um, so, but she had, you know, I think like me, like a lot of us, it was like, well, I haven't seen it in like 10 years. Like, you should probably rewatch it, you know, every decade or so. It's just like an important document. So she watched that, but then she had no interest in Gladiator. So I watched that second. Yeah, I watched it on his list first as well. Um, but anyway, so Minority Report. First of all, this, um, so I, I, 
as the the sort of resident Spielberg um, fan, uh, super fan, I don't know what you want to call me, but the, I think maybe the most underrated and maybe my favorite part of his career is this brief little window from the late 90s to the early 2000s where he really experimented with these sort of harder sci-fi films and concepts. We have AI, artificial intelligence, we have uh, Minority Report, and then we have War of the Worlds, all in a five-year span. And it's also the, the unofficial Running Man trilogy that a lot of people talk about that they say AI, Minority Report, and Catch Me If You Can were three ah. films that he made right in a row about people who are on the run, which I That's think is also kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. And actually, it, you know, people don't include War of the Worlds in that, but they are sort of running from sort of a danger. In That's that true, well. yeah. It has, to, it has Tom Cruise running away from things, so you have to yes. almost include that in the Running Man thing. Yeah. Oh, and side note, I meant to mention this earlier when we were talking about the background. This might be the first week that we've had where both movies, the lead actor has been in movies directed by both directors. Oh, yeah, you might be right. Because Tom Cruise is obviously in Minority Report, World of the Worlds, and in Legend. Yeah. Um, by Ridley Scott, and then um, Indiana Jones, obviously, uh, in Blade Runner, and then uh, or Indiana, Harrison Ford, obviously, in Blade Runner and the Indiana Jones movies, which is a new one coming out. So uh, that's kind of interesting. But with Minority Report, I so Spielberg has, we've talked about it, you know, so much already, but bears repeating because of his genius in terms of just visually how stunning this movie is. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, both of them are really, but like the, since Blade Runner, Steve, you kind of talked about at the top of the show, since Blade Runner is known to be this stunning visual thing because it was so impactful because nobody had done anything quite like it at the time. And it influenced so much beyond it. You know, it's, it's sort of revered for that aspect of its, of itself, but minority report, isn't just because it was i don't know i don't know if i want to say it's not bringing anything new to the table you know we've seen the the star star wars movies that they had one or two prequels we had seen at that time you know and then we the original star wars movies so many different um films that had kind of done similar things visually but he just does it so well in in a way that that sort of captures things that he can't i mean the the beginning when he's doing, you know, he's got the the gloves on and he's doing the the thing on the the sort of semi touchscreen AR thing, and it's just, I mean, it's fantastic visually. Like we, Nate, I know we we talked about. I think it was in the uh, we were talking about the counselor. We were talking about visual storytelling and how that was maybe a slight failure on Ridley Scott's part, comparing that to like No Country for Old Men, and you know, Minority Report visually can tell the story just as well as the actual characters and the the words can. And I think there's so much that you see, you know, he's kind of narrating what he's doing. He's like, no, give me this, tell me that, you know, whatever. But, but you can clearly see what's happening, even though it's all these sort of weird disparate shots and everything. And it's just, it's, it's fantastic. And the editing, the visuals, it's just, and it doesn't stop from there. You know, I mean, it was, go ahead. I think the music that they use in the scenes as well is uh, really, really captivating. I, I think what they do so well with Minority Report that I really picked up on the sense. And I, I saw this movie in theaters, like when it came out, and you know, I was mu- much younger. I was in high school, and I really loved it then. 
and I think it's I've I think it's gotten even better with time. And what I am really struck by when I watch it now is how you have these big broad things that the movie's trying to do, and it does those incredibly well. But then it takes these big broad things, and then it 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 places in these uh, in kind of these really really cool ways these small moments that don't really have anything to do with the big broad thing, but fit perfectly in. There is this whole sequence where um, he has at this point he's kidnapped the the precog and he's like walking around with her and she you know like leans on him and stuff and they're walking through they're walking through the shopping center and she's just grabbing what an incredible scene yeah Yeah. and it's like and that doesn't really add anything to what our main plot line is but it fits so perfectly and it doesn't feel forced and she you know she grabs the don't go home he knows don't go home he knows yeah and it just pulls away and then again with the visual storytelling which really requires you know very little cgi or anything is the point where she hanging on holding on to him she's saying wait wait and then the guy the balloon salesman you know puts a little cart in front of him and stuff it's just there's all those little tiny moments that they take this big broad thing and they're asking these really big questions and yet they're still able to get these little tiny moments in it and I, like you said Jeff it just it doesn't stop it's like the whole movie has these little moments like that and every single one of them has their own little uh, their own little intricate level of brilliance and I just I love it I I actually wrote that down that every scene is a banger like it's just yeah. one after another and i think too i i like the uh the scene right after he has the eye surgery oh and they God. they throw the spiders out like it, it, i always forget even though i like even though i intrinsically know i always forget just how insanely well shot that scene is and how incredible it is like it's just this this overhead shot one long take spanning through the entire building and similar to what you're saying with these little things, right? Like there's somebody who's just sitting watching TV and there's a, a little kid who's crying and the mommy's just like, oh no, just let him, just let him scan your eyes. Just let him scan your eyes. And then there's a couple that's in a huge fight and then they stop immediately and they go up against the wall and the spiders scan their eyes. And, and then, you know, he goes in the, the cold tub to try and, cause they're based on the, they see based on heat and everything. And ah, just an amazing scene. Steve, sorry. I know you, you wanted to say something. I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I had to. Yeah, just I was gonna agree with that same ten, you know, the tenor of what you're saying. Just there's no wasted uh, action here. Like everything is perfectly plotted and choreographed. And uh, I was thinking in particular the the jetpack kind of fight slash flight scene, um, and just every movement is just so perfect. Um, you know, him grabbing onto the guy and riding him up, and it just oh man. And the six sticks, which by the way are just my favorite sick. invention in all of science fiction. <laughs> I had no idea that was coming, but uh, you know, the use of that and just that it, it's yeah, it almost feels like a like a Jackie Chan fight, but a whole movie almost right? like the the physicality of it and the way that it's it's the the way the actual physical action is paced. It's just really really great. Well, and it and asks. Yeah, sorry. It oh, it asks each of those moments is they're so well paced and they're so well shot and they're so well put together. But then, like you know, the spider scene is a great example of like 
it still is able to, and I, again, like, you don't do this on first watch. Like, I did not do this on first watch when I was, when I was watching it in high school. But now that I'm older, I see that scene. I see how incredible it's laid out and what they do with that scene and what, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg as a filmmaker chooses and how he chooses to depict that. Then it's also still asking the question of, like, we go back to these big questions of, like, due process, of, like, should that be allowed? Like, should the police be able to just come in and immediately know every single person who's in a building? And it, you, I start to come away more with those questions as I'm older of when I'm watching it like that and just, like, how it's asking these little questions. And it's doing it with these scenes where it doesn't ever throw that question in your face, but it's just a reality of these characters' existence and the way that it's put out on the screen. It's just – it's incredible. And there's – one of the things that we've talked about before as well, but that Spielberg does so well – is there are there's those massive questions like you just talked about and then he intersperses it with these little spielbergian moments just give you a little something right so when they're having the 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 jetpack chase right they're in the apartment and the jetpack turns around and then yes. somebody has been cooking burgers i wrote that on down. the stove and it flames and the burgers like are like perfectly cooked and and then later when he's trying to get after getting his eye surgery, he's trying to get back into um, the pre-crime with his old eyes. And he, like, tries to get them out of the bag, and they're stuck, and they fall, and he's and they're on the ground the bouncing yeah. like bouncy balls, and he's chasing them. But it never lasts too long to where right. you're like, this is hokey, and it kills it. It's just a couple seconds to just be like, okay, just to ground yourself and, and kind of center yourself as, uh, a little bit. And, you know, some people may or may not like that, but, you know, R- Ridley Scott – just whether it's Blade Runner or anything else, the dude is relentless. He never has those moments. And, you know, I love him for it, just all the same. But Spielberg, because I think if if Ridley Scott would try and add some levity, I just don't know that that's in his wheelhouse to where he can um, appropriately put that into a a scene like that. But but Spielberg can, and he does to great effect. Um, But it's, yeah, it's these, these sort of really big questions and themes that I think, you know, there's, there's also, um, when they talk about, um, they, they talk about the precogs, right. And they're, um, he's showing what we're into the scene that the temple, they call it. And they, they even brings up the, the question of, cause what like, Oh, I went to the seminary and so sorry, this is, you know, he kind of defaults to a religious aspect. And he's like, people worship these precogs. How do you feel about that? And then the guy's like, Oh, you know, we don't believe in any of that. But he goes, but you call this the temple. You know, there's this, this sort of religious subtext in there as well. And then um, they're they're talking about how they they feed the precogs the nutrients they need for their bodies to survive, but then also they drug them with with drugs to make their mind happy. And he, but they're like, we we control it because we don't want them too happy. And one of the quotes is literally that I wrote down. It's better if you don't think of them as human. And so those those questions that you're talking about, Nate, where the spider like should should this be allowed? Should spiders be able to to automatically verify your existence or you're in trouble? And should the police have this power? You know, but it's also like, is the police having this power? Is that taking away some of our humanity, some of our freedom? And these precogs are a huge they're kind of the apex of this because not only do they tell everyone who's going to commit these crimes, but they themselves are robbed of their own humanity. And this, I mean, that's a, 
that's a huge thing. And some of this stuff gets pretty dark. Like it doesn't go super into it, but just these sort of tips of ideas here that, that he lays out. Um, and it's very unspielberg like in, in especially up to this point in his career, you know, like he, he's shown the, the darkness of war with Schindler's list and saving private Ryan and things like that. But, but to this point that these other sort of aspects and these sort of metaphysical questions, he, he hadn't typically really asked it up, up to this point. And I thought that was super interesting. I think, and it's something that he doesn't really, um, I think this is one of the best films that he did in terms of those types of questions. And something we talked about in the past where Ridley Scott asks those questions and Spielberg maybe doesn't, but, but this is one of the movies where Spielberg does. And I think he does it really well. And you, you also look at the scene where Tom Cruise or uh, John Anderton, he catches the Leo Crow. And it's, it all turns out to be fake, which is sort of the Spielberg thanatization, I think, of the scene. But before we learn it's fake, we're thinking this guy is a pedophile, child-kidnapping murderer. And he just caught the man who killed his child after abusing him. And just the pain and anguish on, on Anderton's face, Cruz does a phenomenal job. And it's like, that's just, it's just something that you don't, you don't see a ton of from Spielberg, especially with how family centric he likes to be. And just having this sort of the, the dissolution of family. Normally it's about bringing the family together, sort of his aspect, but, but this dissolution of it that's, that's present in this movie is, is unusual for him, but it's done to great effect because it's harrowing. There's a small moment in that scene that's just so, and it, you can talk at length about Tom Cruise as an actor, and he's an interesting actor, and probably some people would say problematic in certain elements of his life, but um, the that particular moment in that scene that you really get a sense of, um, in a weird way, maybe I get more of a sense of it as a father, um, is... It's almost kind of like you're saying, Jeff. It's almost kind of there's this line where he is looking at it and he just says to the precog who's in the room, he says, you know, everyone was right. I do have no, there is no minority report. And he kind of smiles in this very sadistic way and says, I am going to kill this man. And it's a very, you're right, Spielberg doesn't really go there a lot. That is really kind of breaking this family dynamic where we sort of have this hero that we've been following and it kind of lets this hero go to this really sort of sadistic place where, you know, I think uh, any one of us would would go if we were faced with this, uh, you know, in, in our own lives. And he really kind of pushes that boundary of like humanity and what and what humans are capable of. Um, and it's that just a really small micro moment in that scene that is uh, really powerful. Yeah, and, uh, you know, just continually, you know, scene after scene, and just so many, even little things, too, right? You know, besides, like, that's a big thing. But then even these little, um, <clears throat> like, after he switches his eyes and he walks through shopping center, right, there's um, targeted ads, right? Like, how big of a, <laughs> how big of a um, predictor was that? But, like... As soon as they scan your eyes, then it's like, oh, hi, Mr. Yakamoto. Welcome back to the Gap. Would you like to try more, you know, whatever? And it's like that is just that that picture of society 
which is probably what Steve you were talking about, probably got that from the people who were like, this is going to happen, and they were absolutely right. But, you know, that's just, it's sad, because not only is it is it a reality, but it's just, it's kind of sad, but it's just this sort of little throwaway moment that that continues to build on this world he's created. And one of the things that we've talked about in the past, uh, or in the past few weeks on this show, Ridley Scott is better at world building than Spielberg is. And I think, generally speaking, that might be true. But in Minority Report, Spielberg, this is maybe, as far as world building is concerned, pretty much his, his best, I would say, uh, pretty handily, if you ask me. And it's, it's all those little moments like that. Well, it's also one of the few times, and we'll talk about AI you know, later and some of his other later movies, um, but I think up until this point, it's one of the few times where he's really got to kind of make a world out of whole cloth, right? I mean, a lot of his other, I'm trying to think, the stuff up until this point, there wasn't really much fantasy or, you know, outer space science fiction, right? It's, you know, it's, it's like encounter. stuff, it's regular people. Right. We talk about this with Spielberg all the time, it's like man versus. Exactly. So it's man versus dinosaur, but it's a regular person, like in the world that we occupy, who encounters yep. dinosaurs. Um, or it's a regular, a little, a regular little boy who encounters an alien that's living in a little, yeah. you know, trash can. It's, a, it's this. You're right. This is kind of the thing where it's like, or it's like, you know, Saving Private Ryan is like World War II. Like this is a historical thing. Schindler's List is a historical thing. This is like I'm gonna make something up. I get a completely blank canvas and I get to completely make it up the way that I want to make it up. So I mean, query, what if? you know, like Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott got to do Alien as movie number two. Blank canvas, basically. What if Steven Spielberg kind of had that? Would we look at him the same way? Or do you think... He clearly has the world building in him, obviously, we've seen. Um, I don't know. That's interesting to think about. What if he had it is. had these I, projects I don't, earlier? I don't know if young Spielberg could have done what he did in Minority Report. I think it took him you know, going through the process of making Schindler's List and making Saving Private Ryan and all these different movies that clearly had a profound impact on him to be able to, and probably growing up and having a family himself to sort of be in that, that role. That's my own personal opinion. But I completely agree. I, I don't think young Spielberg, uh, his movies all have... All of his, when I say early movies, like, you know, the first 15 years of his career, all really have that really high concept feeling of an ordinary person is going to be put into a situation that is uh, out of the ordinary, and they're going to have to deal with it in in whatever way. And I, I think you're both exactly correct. I think, that, I think it was, in a weird way, I think it was the making of Schindler's List, where... That was the first time where it was very different. He made that movie in a very different way. He shot it in a documentary style. He didn't storyboard it beforehand. He really, really challenged and pushed himself. And I start. I think you start to see there uh, a kind of maturity. That and it's not that the movies before that weren't mature. Or they were bad. They were immature. They weren't immature, but they all had a kind of a general feel and a kind of a general tone. I don't think that he would have even attempted a movie like this um, when he was a young filmmaker just because I don't think that he would have won. I think he liked the sense of, here's the ordinary person, I'm putting them in an extraordinary situation. And and that's why I think I kind of like this era so much because it does sort of, it's not like a branch or a, a 
branch off, but sort of just a different kind of, you know, curve to his to his arc throughout his career uh, that I think has has led him to to even further his craft. Um, yeah, because he yeah he does similar. You know, he did Ready Player One just a couple of years ago. Uh, the BFG is a fantasy thing. You know, things that he weren't in his repertoire before this. So I think you're I think you're onto something there. All right. Um, let's now let's dive into Blade Runner. So, talk about visually impressive, right? As visually impressive as Minority Report was, man, Blade Runner is something else. It's it's legendary for a reason, and you know, there's so many things that it's almost maybe partly because it's so dark too, but it's it's hard to sort of capture it all. Uh, in just a single viewing, but one of the things that's so excellent is the use of lighting. And it's just constantly, everything's dark and grimy and gritty. But every time they're in a building, you know, the, the slats of the windows, the light coming from the city comes through and it comes through in different colors sometimes. And it's from the headlights of the car, the flying cars and all this different sort of thing. And, you know, maybe one of the most visually impressive scenes is after um, I can't remember the name of the, the android, the tall guy, uh, the replicant, the tall guy with the beard. Um, I can't remember his name. But after Wait, Deckard, Leon? Leon? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Leon. I was gonna say Leo, and I was like, no, that's the name of of the guy from <laughs> Minority Report. But uh, yeah, Leon. And he, um, <clears throat> after Deckard encounters him in the street, and they get into the huge fight, and he gets you know hit in the face a bunch of times. He's all bleeding, but he goes he goes back to the apartment with Rachel, and it's this sort of side shot, and there's like a lamp in the background that's illuminating Harrison Harrison Ford. His Decker is almost completely in shadow, but he's got this uh, plastic or, or whatever see through cup, and you can see the liquid in it, some sort of alcohol, but it's clear alcohol. And he takes a he takes a drink of it. It's like a shot glass. Takes a drink of it, puts it back down. Or doesn't put it down, but but takes it away from his lips, and you see just like a little bit of blood from his mouth from the fight that he just had, shoots into the cup and then sort of dissipates, and you see it all perfectly because of the lighting, and the background illuminates the cup and everything so well, and that's a, and you see actually a little tinge of redness from the blood, and that's of course juxtaposed with 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 Deckard being almost completely in shadow, and it's just like man, that is masterful, just just shots like that. You know, and they're they're all over this movie as well. I mean, these visually speaking, you I don't know if you could make a better a better combo between these two movies, especially as far as sci-fi is concerned. I mean, they're just both visually striking in very different ways too, which is what's really cool. Um, but but you know, that was one of my favorite sort of just visual shots uh, from that. But I you know I love film noir as well, and I think Blade Runner more so than than leading in leaning into some of the themes from the book really leans into that noir angle and you know you get the voiceover Harrison Ford terrible at voiceovers or maybe the only weakness of the film um, like Harrison Ford is a great actor but as a narrator of voiceover I thought they were terrible I like I'm I'm not one of those voiceover haters either I, I I don't mind voiceovers but he just wasn't good at it That actually brings up a good point um what version did you guys watch what well, first of all did I, you I watched it, it. I watched the, the I did rewatch. I watched the theater version, so I got the narration. I think it's I cut out of the director's the, cut, right? Yeah, I saw the theater version. I actually learned when I was just like looking up stuff. There's a whole 
Wikipedia page dedicated to that's just called Versions of Blade Runner. Yeah. <laughs> that Versions of Blade Runner has its own Wikipedia page yeah. to go through like the nine different versions the, that exist the um, final of, cut, of this movie. That's the one to watch. That's the one I rewatched, and it, it, there's no voiceover. I've watched it before, but for this one, I just um, I just rented. That was the the one I could rent was the the theatrical version. When I first, because I saw the movie later in life, probably in college or maybe even a little after college, and the first one I ever saw was the final cut. So I kind of existed. That might have been for me as well. Yeah, it existed in my mind without the voiceover, but I'd heard there in the original one there was this terrible voiceover narration, and then I watched the one with the voiceover narration. It is kind of it's pretty forced. Apparently, that's one of the huge things that they butted heads about uh, Ford and Scott because Harrison Ford did not like it and thought it was came off bad, uh, which it sounds like it did. Because yeah, I don't think I've ever actually seen the version with the voiceover. I'm with you. I think the first time I saw it was one of the nine. <laughs> The nine versions that didn't have it. Yeah, because I actually wrote down, you know, the narration is terrible, and the Edward James almost character. Um, cannot remember his name now because it's it's such a gaff. Gaff, yes, thank you. Um, he just he he just shows up randomly at all these different points in the film, and it's never really clear why he's there and what his purpose is, and so that would have been a really easy way for them to skip over the narration because the narration is all just explaining things. Like at some point Gaff comes up and speaks to him in a different language and the narration is like, I knew what he was saying, but I pretended like I didn't speak the language. And Oh God, that is horrible. And the, uh, like you could have just had Edward James almost character. You could have just had him sort of have a dialogue and get some of these points across without having to, to deal with this, this silly narration. So that was kind of a missed opportunity. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think one of the most interesting things to me, especially when I think about it from taking on the themes of the, the novel, is it, it, still, it still tries to delve into humanity, what makes us human. And there's a loneliness aspect to the movie as well, similar to the novel. But... I, more different from the novel I felt like was there's this sort of um, creator creation dynamic and aspect here. And there's, they, they don't explicitly address religion like they do, you know, they don't have this religion like Mercerism in the novel, but they do have a sort of religious undertone to everything. Um, Tyrell, right? The man himself is, he lives literally high, up on high, you know, in this massive building, this massive complex with spires and it's huge and everything's gold and it's gilded and he's got this massive bed and he wears these white robes. Um, like in the final scene where, where he gets killed by Roy Batty, he's wearing these white robes and everything. And Roy Batty even says, you know, it's not very often that you get to meet your maker. And one of the mantras from earlier in the film that Tyrell says is kind of their, their motto of the Tyrell Corporation is, you know, more human than human. And there, there, it's this idea of, you know, he's, he's creating these things and trying to replace it. It's this constant theme that we've seen in, in, in so many that just pops up throughout Ridley Scott's career. And we talked about it with playing God last week, right? Where, you know, 
Tyrell is playing God and creating these these synthetics, these replicants. And he's not only by creating them as he's playing them, but by by being the arbiter of their life, their decisions. Uh, you're only going to live for four years. We're going to program you that four years hits and you die immediately. And Roy Batty and other androids or other replicants are even to the they they like this isn't fair. You know, this why should I have to do this? Why can't I be allowed to live for a longer period of time? You know, why is that something that's only humanity? If I'm created just like humans were, then why don't I get that that piece of humanity? Just because I'm a replicant, what does that mean for me? You know, I think those are really interesting questions. It's 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 tackled in a different way than it was in the novel, but but I think it's it's really interesting, and it's this dynamic that we've seen so much from Ridley Scott. That that, and I thought that that final scene really, or not final scene, but that final uh, death scene for Tyrell really kind of um, kind of hammered that point home really well. Well, I think it's the uh, I think that you know looking back at the playing God episode uh, where we looked at these two things, I think it's as simple as, and you see it again this week. I think it is as simple as up versus down. Spielberg is up. And Ridley Scott is down just in terms of their tone and their pessimism versus their optimism that there, there are problems with this future society in Minority Report. But it's interesting that Spielberg's vision of the future, that like they're doing it like in Blade Runner, like the, you know, there's all these environmental disasters and, and, and things that have like caused this destruction of the earth. Whereas like in Minority Report, you know, we actually like tried to address climate change and they have all this technology that is supposed to help kind of uh you know uh stop us from emitting carbon and toxins into the air and stuff and it's just interesting to see how like how even in their production design even in their visions of what the future are spielberg seems to be infused at the end of his stories with some sense of hope something's going to get better and ridley scott seems to be infused with this idea that there there in some sense maybe there is no hope and that things are going to get worse. And we saw it very much last week, and I think we see it this week in everything, in, the, in their cinematography, in their production, in the story, and, and the stories that they've decided to tell. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just the colors of the movie. I mean, Minority Report is just, it's white. It's its brilliant. It's yep, glaring. It's like blue. It's like this blue, yeah. white, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there were a lot of times I actually thought it kind of felt like he was almost doing an homage to Blade Runner with like the use of shadows and stuff. Um, but as a general rule, yeah, it's definitely, it's brighter and cleaner and clearer. Whereas like you, you pointed out, Jeff, you know, Blade Runner's just soaked in shadow. Um, one thing that'll make a lot of sense when you hear it, one of the inspirations for the look of Blade Runner that Ridley Scott had, uh, you, you know, the famous painting, um, Nighthawks, the the person sitting at the bar and the like, okay, a cafe, yeah. That he specifically cited that as an inspiration for the look and feel he wanted. And so it's like, well, yeah, he nailed it. Yeah. But yeah, I I don't really have anything to add from what you guys were saying. It, it 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 we really are stumbling upon some themes here with them, some recurring themes. Uh, and you know, yeah, and I, and I think one of the things that interested me too so much about. Like continuing with this, just sort of playing God, and 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 more so even like what you're saying, Nate, the the up versus down, this pessimistic angle. I mean, there were so many instances where there were 
things that were just very bleak and sometimes outright mean in Blade Runner, right? Like when, so initially Pris, when she, um, she befriends JF Sebastian, kind of using him to be, to, to hide out in his apartment. She initially plays the damsel in distress role, playing on the fact that he seems to be someone of, of lesser, and or at least if not lesser intelligence, lesser social acuity and taking advantage of him. And then, you know, to his face, she continues this, but then especially once Roy comes along, then she completely turns and they flaunt their relationship in front of him. And they, they attack him in this sort of sexual way where it's like, you know, there's no actual sex involved, but it's like, there's the, the sexuality between her and Ray is, or I'm sorry, her and Roy is presented in a way that, you know, it's it's a direct rebuke to to Sebastian and being like, nope, you're never gonna get here, buddy. <laughs> so, you know, you have to deal with that. And and then another scene too, in the same regard, you know, when when Rachel is at uh, Deckard's apartment and she's playing the piano and she sees the pictures and uh, and she's she's always had her hair super well done, super tight and just perfect sort of, uh, I don't even know what kind of design you would call it, but, but eventually she, she takes it, um, she takes it out and she lets it go. And it's this sort of curly, wild, sort of lion mane type um, hair. And she kind of looks at herself and, and you can tell she thinks about herself differently now than she did before. Even though now she knows she's a replicant when she didn't before she now feels like she's she's sort of owning it. She's sort of taking making herself her own person, her own entity. But then immediately after that, we get this really weird, like rapey vibe scene where Deckard just like manhandles her and um forces himself on her and is like, you know, do you want this? Do you want this? And and she's like, she says yes, but she clearly doesn't. And it's it's again, it's just like this the second that she has this agency, then it's ripped from her. Just like all the replicants, you know, that's their their lot in life. Every time they, they try for more agency, it just gets ripped from them. And it gets ripped from them in the absolute hor- most horrible way possible. And, you know, I, it feels weird the fact that, that her and Deckard end up together at the end because it's never quite clear exactly, you know, whether whether Rachel truly does love him. But but she says she does, I guess. But but that scene was pretty brutal, I thought. Even though, you know, we don't, like, actually see any sort of rape or anything, it it, it, it felt that way to me. It's, it's always felt that way. It's always felt hard to watch that particular scene. Um, and, and there's just that level of brutality that, that Spielberg, even though Minority Report is darker and more brutal than some of his stuff, he'll never go there. He just won't. He's just not that kind of guy which is fine, but, um, you know, that's, that's something that, that Ridley Scott will, will, well, he'll, he'll toe that line a little bit further than, than Spielberg will. But I thought, you know, those moments in particular just, just felt mean to me, which is not a bad thing, but it's just kind of an observation. So I got to know where, like, which one are you guys picking? Because I have a movie, I have one in mind. And neither of you have said anything that's going to sway me otherwise, but I want to hear what you guys say first of like which movie ultimately is better. I think they're both really, really good visions of 
they're both incredible visions kind of loosely adapted from these stories. So I'm, I'm just curious. I'll, I'll go first because Jeff, I think you've probably thought way more about this um, because of your, uh, your interest in the Philip K. Dick uh, writings. And yeah, I think you've put a lot more thought into it. Um, so or at the beginning I asked, you know, what are we gauging it on? What do we think is a better movie? And then what do we, who do we think did a better job taking the ideas and the themes and the writing? Um, I kind of think, I think Minority Report is the more entertaining movie and the movie that I would want to go watch again uh, more often. I think Blade Runner actually is the better application and themes in the, that Philip K. Dick kind of puts forward and talks about. Um, I think it, uh, kind of like what we've talked about, some of these other things, I think Blade Runner is aiming higher. Um, this is pretty high for Steven Spielberg, though, to aim, like you guys have mentioned. Um, it's it's not just kind of, it's not just him set not just to entertain, like some of his movies kind of feel like. He is exploring some maybe your themes, but I think Blade Runner is the more important movie. Um, I think it is, it uh, maybe just by nature of being first and when it came out and everything, but I think it is the more, um, uh, you know, has a, has had a bigger impact, obviously. Um, and I think it's the better, I guess I'll have to say it's the better movie too, just because of that. Even though, like I said, I'd rather go watch Minority Report again. Well, more entertaining so. doesn't always mean more better. That's true. Be better. That's true. Fair. Like Jurassic Park is way more entertaining than Godfather, but Godfather's better. There you go. So, so I guess yeah, Blade Runner. You go with Blade Runner. Yes. All right. So, I am going to go. Well, I guess you said Steve at the beginning. You said you didn't think it's close. You still feel that way. You still don't think it's close. No, I. I guess I lack the courage of my convictions because just talking about it and hearing you guys talk about it, I do think it's a lot closer than I originally thought an hour and a half ago. So, um, good work, I guess, for (laughs) convincing me. Um, I do think it's much much closer. Than I originally so, felt. Yeah, I I love both these movies. They're both fantastic films. But the point of this is to choose. And uh but I am going to choose Minority Report because I think that um up to this point, every weakness that we've talked about, even if it's not I don't even know if this is weakness, but every difference that we've talked about, um, where Spielberg has maybe fallen short, world building asking bigger questions, you know, sort of just, just pushing over that, that normal sort of PG 13 line for lack of a better term uh, that he hadn't really done outside of like a Schindler's list or something, at least as far as the movies we talked about, uh, you know, he answers all those questions and then some in, in this movie, you know, he takes his trademark visual appeal. He does any movie. That, uh, if there's a movie that can rival Blade Runner visually, it's minority report. And, he gets these amazing performances out of Tom Cruise and Samantha Morton is fantastic. And Max von Sydow is so evil and so good. And it's just all of that and all the world building that, that we hadn't really seen before. And just this sort of darkness that wasn't as much of a focus as it was Blade Runner, but it was, it's there a little bit more. And I think it was, I think this movie was kind of a seminal movie for Spielberg. It's one of my favorites of his. And it's, I think it kind of launched him into being a, even though by now he'd already won two Oscars. Like I, I think is in terms of his, like I was saying, the, the aware of his career, I think it 
this movie really kind of kind of kicks him into it another gear where he's got that that ability that I don't know that he necessarily had before outside of essentially war movies, right? So um I I still like I love Blade Runner, but I, I still I think Minority Report, every time I watch that movie I like it more and more. And my biggest issue with Blade Runner is every time I watch it, even after it's done, I feel like I missed something. I, I feel like did I fall asleep for like a ten minute period where I missed some big reveal or something else? I just feel like as good as it is with everything it does, it's still almost just slightly incomplete. Even maybe I need to watch the other eight versions too to get the final picture. You but watch um, the, the final true complete director's cut. But uh, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of always the way I feel. And like I said, you know, especially after reading. Um, even before reading Dwayne Doors Dream of Electric Sheep, I thought Blade Runner 2049 was better than the original. That was my hot take, even back when that movie was released. But even after reading the the novel, I still think that. And this will probably be the hottest take of the entire podcast to say that I think Minority Report, for me, to say that I think Minority Report is better than Blade Runner. And that I, I, I don't think it's particularly close, but... That's me. Nate, you got to do it. Yeah, you got to break the tie. I got to break the tie. I think everything that we're saying is correct. And again, I think it's important to remember that so much of this is going to come down to personal preference uh, with certain things. Um, you know, I think Ridley Scott asks big questions. I'm not sure that there is an individual moment in Minority Report that is as good as Tears in the Rain. Um, it's like one of the most iconic things ever in, in cinematic history. Um I I will <laughs> I I agree with Steve that that Blade Runner is probably mm-hmm. overall a, a more important movie, but oh, I, I do think Minority Report is better. And yes, and and, and, and here's here's why I th- here's why I think I think one it's very unique in Spielberg's catalog. Uh, I think it was uh, as we've said it was a, it was a huge step forward. Um, and I don't know why I want to think this way. Uh, Jeff, you and I had the exact same hot take when it came out. I immediately thought Blade Runner 2049 was better than the original Blade Runner. The, the, I walked out of the theater. I loved 2049. And I walked out of the theater and said, God, that was better than That's like one of the few sequels. Like we talk about this all the time. Like that's another example. Like that, that bettered the original. In every way, that bettered the original. And... I don't know, that shouldn't make me think any less of the original Blade Runner, but for some reason I just feel like, man, if they made a sequel that was better than that movie, it's it's hard for me to put the original Blade Runner over Minority Report, knowing that like Blade Runner 2049 was so much better than Blade Runner. I don't know. It's a convoluted ranking system in my head that, that makes sense <laughs> to me. <laughs> but it, it's just what it is. I, I think that there's just so much visually in how we, I mean, how we said that like every scene in Minority Report works. And it's a Blade Runner, regard. Blade Runner just had, Jeff, I agree. It Every time I watch it, and I've watched a couple different versions of it, it moves a little slow for me. Um, I mean, these were the criticisms of the movie when it came out. It didn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a huge box office success, and it kind of became a cult classic later. But still, to this day, people kind of say like, eh, "It moves a little slow. It does ask really big questions. It's got the tears in the rain scene." Um, I, I think, in particular, like I think that scene, that moment, if you take that out of the movie, it really goes down for me. 
which is I say it says a lot about that moment in the movie, but it also I think says a little bit something about that movie that if I just took this one moment out of the movie, that it really lowers the quality of the movie for me. Um, whereas every single scene in Minority Report just works and it all goes together so seamlessly, and I I, I just think that vision is is more interesting and I think that it's a more complete film that works as a film and works for entertaining its audience. I'm saying Minority Report, Steven Spielberg wins this week. Boom. That's where it evened up again. Three to Can three, right? Can I recount? <laughs> so question question. You bring that up about how Blade Runner kind of became a cult classic later. So the the really even at the time the only big star in that movie was Harrison Ford. Right, like Rutger Hauer wasn't huge. He never became huge afterwards. Edward James almost he kind of had a moment, but he never really became huge. You know, Daryl Hannah in the '80s was big, but she, you know, never really became the icon. Harrison Ford is an absolute Hollywood icon, and has been since that movie, since before that movie. So, if if they had a different actor in there who was not nearly as iconic as Harrison Ford, do you think Blade Runner would have just been forgotten? Or do you think Blade Runner still would have would have eventually caught on the same way that it did? Because my wife and I were talking about this, and we both kind of thought that without Harrison Ford being so such an icon, I, I don't think that it would have caught on like it did. Because like you said, Nate, it wasn't well-received at the time. And uh, I think with a lesser actor, I think, which is a big props to Harrison Ford, but I, I think it would have suffered quite a bit more. It's interesting for both movies that they both get great perform. They get great performances from everyone. They get they both get great performances out of these A-list actors. But at the same time, I don't feel like either of those movies is really defined by the performance of those actors. Um, there's yeah, other it, things. There's other things in the movie that you talk about before you talk. Like if someone brings yeah. up Blade Runner, they don't go, "Oh God, Harrison Ford is just brilliant in that." They they typically talk about. Sci-fi and the production design yeah. and the futurism, and I think the same thing for Minority Report. I don't think the first thing that comes out of people's mouths is, and Tom Cruise is just fantastic in that. So they're both they're both great performances, uh, but they're not movies that are really defined by that. Yeah, I wonder if, particularly at the time that it came out, if it kind of would have been relegated to a lower status just because it didn't have that Harrison Ford star power, and maybe we don't. Maybe the sense of it being reevaluated is just because it's in Harrison Ford's. Because like if you're, or, if, or even if, if it's a Ridley Scott thing, like I mean that it has these kind of A-list names attached to it that kind of get it reevaluated in a way that other movies don't necessarily get. Yeah, because if you're looking at Harrison Ford's filmography, and you you look back, oh yeah, he was in Blade Runner. Like let's watch that movie, and it was directed by Ridley Scott. This movie should. Was this movie not good? What's going on here? Versus like. You're probably not even going to look at, I don't know, James Spader. I don't know, you know, it's just somebody who's like a sort of B-list guy. Are you going to look at that and revisit because, oh, well, this should be better because it's got, you know, this guy. Well, we literally did this, a couple, we did this a couple weeks ago with their worst movies. Like, there's no way, there's no way that anyone ever is revisiting The Counselor or 1941 <laughs> if they're not directed by these two people. There's no way that anyone is even making an attempt to try to go back and say, maybe there's something here because they're both really, really talented storytellers and filmmakers. So, yeah, I don't I, – yeah, I think maybe if these names aren't attached to it, it probably goes by the wayside a little bit. But I don't know, maybe the same thing for Minority it's, Report. Oh, man. It, it's it's a chicken or the egg thing because, like – Yes. 
mm-hmm. like think about when the movie came out. Nothing looked like that. It it didn't even like Star Wars had come out, of course, and, but still nothing quite nailed that. No. You know, oh. that feeling and the grittiness and. The, but again, did it get this critical reevaluation because of who's involved with it? You know, what came first, the the appreciation for how groundbreaking it was or people looking back at it because of who's I don't know. That is really hard to say. But I'm with There's you, also, Nate. I, I, yeah, I don't think I think it's very they're very workmanlike performances by two really like really, really great charismatic actors. But they're not doing anything particularly Tom Cruise or Harrison Fordy in these yeah. movies, I don't think. Uh, the other thing that I'll say against Blade Runner, and I think Roger Ebert was the one who made this point. We can double check it, and I'll correct myself in the show notes. I'm almost certain it was Roger Ebert. I think he gave, at the time Blade Runner came out, I think he gave not a bad review of it, but just kind of a very average review of it. And he notoriously, Roger Ebert would never, now he would go back and kind of, he would write new reviews of movies, but he has always said he would never go back and change any of his original reviews. And I think he kind of gave an average review of the original Blade Runner and something that he, uh, people have, you know, criticized him for this for, you know, for years while he was alive. People talked about it. How can you not like Blade Runner? How can you not acknowledge it's a classic? And something that he said, and we talked about the Wikipedia page of all these different versions, is he said, I guess my thought would be, if it's such a great movie, why has the director continuously tried to go back and change it over and over and over again? Like if it, if it was such a perfect movie That's on first Christmas watch, what, why are there so many different versions of this movie that fans all have these different disagreements on which one is the best version? Yeah, that, that it's it's a little so, bit of a mark against it. So that well, that was my first thought when we were talking about all the versions. But I will bring up the famous Michelangelo quote: "Right, art art is never finished, just abandoned." True. Just like podcasts. Just like That's podcasts. That's true. But well, we are going to finish this episode. This was this was a little bit longer than normal, but I was really good. I had a lot of stuff that we wanted to talk about. So oh, so, um, so much I didn't even get to talk about. I the know. Eyes, the, symboli- the eyes. These movies are dripping in eye symbolism. What does it mean? What, is it, anyway. what does it all mean, Basil? But yeah, the... Uh, That's an Austin Powers reference for you youngsters. There you go. Go rent them. They're funny. Well, I don't know. if They may not hold up. Yeah, the... Uh, the eyes have it. I'm telling you, the, yeah, he, the Philip K. Dick weird obsession with eyes. I guess <laughs> he's got a thing. Um, but anyway, um, shoot, I didn't have the thing pulled up. What is our topic next week? Do you remember? Five V Spy. Spy versus Spy. That's right. It is uh, Bridge, Bridge of Spies versus Body of Lies. A little yep. rhyming pattern going go. on here. There we go. Yes. So uh, I have actually not seen Bridge of Spies yet, so that'll be interesting. And I've I, seen I, Body I, of Lies. I haven't so. seen that. I saw that in the theater, but I have not seen it since. So that's that came out like 15, 16 years ago. I oh, think God, gonna, don't say that. Um, I think I'm going to, yeah, I'll definitely have to revisit that one as 2008. well. 2008. Oh, almost 15 no, years ago. Was ago. 2008 is when I don't care that at all. Oh, man. I had graduated college at that point. Yeah. Um, so anyway. This is another yes, one, though, but... where we got, I think, a crossover. Wait. Um, never mind. A little bit of a crossover. DiCaprio. Actually, I wrote it. I wrote down. I had a. I have a list. You can't. You can't see this on the podcast, but I'm showing them. Just I, imagine. I it. Use your eye. Use your internal a, eye. On a, on a break at work of all the crossover actors who have been in both. Um, I think these are all the ones I can. I got, but um, 
to, to your point, yes, Leonardo DiCaprio, Body of Lies, and uh, Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Um, but no Tom Hanks. No, uh, no Tom Hanks. Well, shucks. Maybe Mark Rylance was in something. Anyway, but both. Um, so yeah, that is what we'll be talking about next week. And this, uh, sorry for, for running a little bit long, but this was, this was a fun episode. At least it Listen to it at 1.25 speed. You'll be fine. <laughs> there you go. Um, so with that, uh, for myself, <clears throat> Steve, Nate, and of course our freelance producer, Brandon Nichols, thank you all so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Be sure to tune in spy versus spy next week until you, until then, um, we'll see you. And, and thanks for, Thanks for listening.